Hello, I'm Philip Brain. And I'm Harry Clennon. And you're listening to Bird's Eye by Spectacles. Welcome. If this is your first time listening to Spectacles, or Bird's Eye in particular, take a listen to the show trailer here in your podcast app or on our website at spectacles.news to learn more about what Spectacles is, what we believe, and what you can expect from this show and our other shows Insight and Focus. If you turned on the TV right now and flipped to a news station, take your pick. CNN, MSNBC, Fox, whatever. What would you expect to find? Would you expect someone trying to help you understand the complexities of American politics and what kinds of ideas and concepts would be useful to you in better comprehending contemporary issues and democratic challenges? Or would you expect to find a pundit trying to persuade you of some black-white partisan narrative of good and evil, in which one side is wholly angelic and the other entirely wicked? I'm figuring you'd expect to find the second thing, the one where newscasters sound like guys in a local bar drunkenly shouting about which rival sports team is better, totally stubborn and intractable, and entirely certain that the other guy must be living in some alternate reality with more than a hint of a desire to break a bottle over the other's head. Why is that? Why is politics treated like some kind of sports rivalry? Can we potentially better understand what's going on by diving into an explanation of the many spaces in between left and right on the political spectrum? Well, today we're going to be talking about just that, discussing political alignment and explaining some critical concepts like party sorting, political spectrums, political compasses, and some impacts of the two-party system on American politics as the opening of our series on the political spectrum, party alignment, and the two-party system in the United States. Yeah. So, well, first of all, Philip, how are you doing today? I feel like we never see each other. So I, I don't get to ask you. We don't see each other that much. What? <laughs> I'm just trying to joke, bro. <laughs> Harry and I see each other every day for most of the day. Yeah. And we're like this close to killing each other. No, we're, just yeah, we're, we're just we're, kidding. Somebody's going to break. Yeah. <laughs> Got our own little politics sports game in our... That's terrible. <laughs> All right. So the the political spectrum is kind of a way of visualizing, you know, partisan divides I mean, political positions, right, from the liberal left to the, to the conservative right. And, you know, obviously it's kind of strange, right? We're talking about visualizing something in, in a podcast, but we'll try and communicate it. And it's not, it's not all we're going to, it's not all we're going to talk about in, in, the, in terms of how we're sort of trying to map different sort of political positions and, and conceptions of politics. It's maybe similar to our discussions of left liberalism and conservatism in the episodes that we did on small government and big government, our, our, our second and third episodes of Bird's Eye, which we're going to link um, in the show notes for you to, 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 to check out. I and mean, you should, because I think those are, that are, that'll be, a, you know, more of a clear articulation of sort of the exact sort of general philosophical positions that you might expect the two parties to take. Is that right? Yeah, yeah. And the political spectrum, just to sort of make it extra clear, you've definitely seen it many times before. It's like a a line going left to right, and you map parties or political positions or individuals from left to right. 
Right. I mean, it makes, I mean, and it makes intuitive sense, right? Because it also intuitively maps onto a, a, a bipolar, you know, single axis, right? You've got a line on the left is people who identify with, you know, larger government, social spending, that kind of a thing. And on the right, you have people who are conservative, who want to, you know, maintain views about religion and, and the free market and that kind of thing. And, and this makes sense for the United States, where we have sort of bipolar or two-sided politics, because mm -hmm. we have two parties, it makes sense to think of politics as mappable along this single line right. from one side to the other side. Right. And in our case, one party claims one side and the other party claims the other side, right? right. So it, it, it seems to make some, some clear intuitive sense. But we definitely have some problems here. So first of all, Parties might have varying positions on different issues. For example, you know, it was not that long ago that the Republican Party was the pro-immigration party. Or a pro-immigration party, right? Yeah. And that you could think of that, we, we would think of that today as sort of an issue that puts you on the left. So this is either a situation in which issues aren't so easily mappable left to right, mm -hmm. first of all, or... The fact that parties, which might, you know, occupy one side of the spectrum or the other, also take positions that are contrary to that general alignment. So this this sort of idea of the political spectrum starts to get complicated by the idea that, you know, parties might not be entirely consistent mm -hmm. on where you would expect them to be on the spectrum. Or even just that maybe in some ways, like, that the... Assignment. I'm trying to think of the best way to say it, but that like the assignment of a space on some you know imaginary bipolar axis is retro, is retroactive to where the party, the position right. that the party has taken, and because the Republican Party, which is generally identified, has been generally identified with the right since you know the changing throughout history, but I'd say the 1930s onward. Yeah, and we're going to get um, into that a little bit. Sure. sure. It has generally been identified with the right, that any position it takes is then assigned to the right end of the political spectrum. Right. right? With, some right. with some general, but not necessarily complete consistency, so that the, the assignment of X policy area to the right or to the left is retroactive to where the party, we conceive of the party as, as sitting already. It, um, it, it, it means basically that because... We have a two-party system, and if we think about issues or politics along this bipolar, this, the, this sort of binary guideline of left or right, and one party claims one side and the other party claims the other, that issues or positions that they take, what I think you're trying to say is that whatever positions they take are going to be viewed as occupying their side of the political alignment. Yeah, we've tried so to what, fit everything whatever, into the theoretical framework that we're already working in. Yeah, what, whatever Republicans say, oh, that must be like the right-wing position. When in reality, obviously, that changes. Mm -hmm. And so it's really not a super accurate way of, of mapping those things in, 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 a certain, in, mm -hmm. in a certain sense. I think also you have the possibility of politicians within a party that might be less in line with that party's general position on the political spectrum. Just like it was not long ago that the Republicans were very pro-immigration, it was also not that long ago that you could find in Congress liberal Republicans and conservative Democrats. Right. And it's interesting that at that point, I think the sort of uh, movement of the parties or the positioning of the parties was much more defined by 
geography, for example, than by, I mean, I guess today there's still geographic identities, urban, rural, and stuff like that, but geography in terms of maybe what region of the United States you lived in might be more determinative of your party than specific policy views. Right. Um, And that probably also has its, like, origins without getting too deep into the history of like machine politics and so like what political machine right being what yeah. basically corrupt political organization was running this city or this state had any power and then the other one might not have had power so you just you know you if you wanted to ascend the ranks in politics you probably just pick the party that had the best shot you know in your area and you might and that may not have had the tightest correspondence to where the parties ostensibly sat at the level of national politics yeah yeah more or less i think the idea that we're seeing today, though, is that these problems, you know, parties not being consistent or individuals within a party not being consistent with the general party position on the political spectrum have been largely sorted out mm-hmm. by what we would call party sorting in America, which has been I don't know, pretty totally, I would say, complete parties have been almost entirely sorted by what, like 2010? Well, I think that's actually, I was I was thinking about, you know, we talked about this before uh, we started. I was thinking about that. I think that's exactly the right year. Either 2010 or 2014 is when the last Democratic senators were really thrown out of this, out of Southern politics. And so if you think, you know, you may think or may know of the idea that Democrats were dominated the South of the United States until civil rights and the backlash to civil rights and, and, and that sort of thing in the 70s, 80s, maybe 90s. But in reality, there were a lot of relatively centrist or conservative Democrats that had been were elected in the South in Arkansas, Louisiana, those states. And in and that's that's how Barack Obama had, for example, 60 votes in the U.S. Senate, how the Democrats had 60 votes in the U.S. Senate from 2008 to 2010, 2009 to 2011. And in about and in 2010, and maybe a couple holdovers in 2014, I think maybe in Arkansas in 2014, the Democratic senators in the South were voted out of office, right? And that was sort of the real, I think, actually, so it's much more recent than you think of the idea that, that there were conservative Democrats in the South who were elected at the level of national leadership, who were finally sort of excised from national political life and that was that was actually quite recent so we're talking 2010 to 2014 i think is when like the full sorting of the parties really became complete yeah so that's a good year yeah and so this idea is that through polarization or the nationalization of politics you see increased party discipline and adherence to a party line sure because you know, if you have someone like Newt Gingrich, for example, who was Speaker of the House in the 90s, Speaker of the House in the 90s for the Republicans, who declares that, who who tells there was some contract with America. Yeah, in the, in 94, when the Republicans took the House of Representatives, they took the House of Representatives for the first time, you know, I think like 40 years because there were these Southern Democrats. So the Democrats actually commanded a majority, even though, you know, the Southern Democrats would frequently vote with Republicans. And so the House wasn't, again, it was not as sorted. In 1994, Republicans took the House for the first time because Newt Gingrich was sort of a leader in the in the in the 1994 midterm campaigns, and he made a contract with America, a series of you know conservative propositions, and he you know it, it in in one sense really sort of helped to polarize the country because he sort of navigated the Republican Party clearly to the right end of what we think of as the political spectrum. Yeah, and and also 
you can see the the roots of increased party discipline and he gave this talk to some young republicans club i think it was in georgia mm. in the 90s where right. he told he told these college students politics is total war right yeah and and there's just a and that obviously is going to be a situation that necessitates different sort of party line behavior and discipline than was previously expected in congress mm-hmm. but anyways the I, basically the argument is that because of sorting that's happened in America, parties are now more ideologically consistent, coherent, and clear on that left-right divide. So before, where you could have seen the Democrats might have some conservative positions or conservative mm-hmm. politicians, or the Republicans might have some liberal positions or liberal politicians that confuse that sort of left-right distinction, that's not a problem anymore. And so now the you can think of the, the the political spectrum being more useful because it isn't confused in those ways. Right. I mean, yeah. I mean, so in some ways, right, that sorting is, is helpful. And I would say, right, you do see that, for example, you can now more reliably expect, in fact, generally speaking, quite reliably, you can expect Republicans to identify with conservatism, with the free market, and Democrats to identify with social spending and higher taxes and, you know, certain uh, social justice issues and stuff like that. So you can, that becomes, I think, that has become clearer. And so in that sense, right, you do see there's a little bit more ideological consistency, a lot more ideological consistency, and parties are more disciplined, and they're more unified. But in some ways, I don't think it's actually quite so simple, right? Yeah. Because even as they might be more disciplined, and even as in 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 broad terms, you can more reliably see the parties as, you know, staking out positions on this thing that we think of as the political spectrum. They're not necessarily always ideologically consistent. And, at you know, within or, across or, or issues coherent. or across time, they're not necessarily ideologically consistent or coherent, as you say, in that discipline. And in that way... You know, a simple left-right binary or spectrum is not going to fully explain at any given time why a certain party stands where it does on a certain issue or tell you really what that party is all about on this or that issue. Yeah, yeah. And so basically the, the lesson that we're seeing is obviously politics is complicated. And that's basically why some people say that instead of a political spectrum, we should use a political compass to help mm-hmm. map parties or policy positions. A political compass is sort of like a graph. You've got sort of four quadrants and, and, and an X or horizontal and a Y or vertical axis. And the common political compass you'll see usually is from left to right, you have economic positions from the left to the right. So more government spending and, and social welfare and on the left and then toward the right, you have less government regulation and, and free market and things like this. Mm-hmm. And from the bottom to the top, you have this division between libertarianism to authoritarianism at the top. Right. So smaller government to bigger government, mm-hmm. basically. Right. This, this sort of way of thinking about mapping political positions or parties can be helpful because you know, the terms are more precise than left, right. It's on a on a political spectrum, all you have is left, right. What does left mean? What does right mean? Mm-hmm. What does liberal or conservative mean? It doesn't really help to define... It, it, it sort of takes definitions for granted mm-hmm. in, in describing them. There's right? a lot of assumptions already baked into a left, right, right axis right. that is a single left, right axis. And you, you probably, you may have seen this, you may have taken the, the political compass quiz, you can look it up. Actually, 
hell, we'll we'll include it and we'll link it in the show notes if you want to take it. You can. I don't think it's a very useful quiz kind of fun to take see where they map you i think the answers are kind of dishonest they push you in a certain direction anyway but that's one that a lot of people know it's actually it's this it's the it's the subject material the source material for a lot of memes and political memes but anyway it's not it's not that simple and more recently right you, there you actually saw in, in the new york times uh, and this goes to show that it's not so simple as those two categories right size of government and welfare spending essentially yeah yeah very good the new york times had an, sort of an op-ed kind of article thing shared recently which sort of gave readers again a political compass quiz a 20 but question quiz articles by lee drutman by lee drutman um who we're trying to have on our podcast next week so, come on our uh, podcast if you lee. like this episode tweet at lee drutman <laughs> and tell him to come on um <laughs> But the the axes, right, it's a 20-question quiz. See where you might line up against a theoretical multi-party system in America with six parties, and we'll talk a little bit more about that later. But the axes were economic left and right, similar to the prior political compass quiz, but also sort of progressive to conservative on social values on the y-axis, bottom to top. And in a way, that's kind of helpful because sometimes you can end up, right, you would, you would there's no... Certain things might get left left out of the initial political compass quiz, and so that might help clear things up in some sense. But it but it also highlights the fact that you could make any number of political compasses with the axes labeled different things. Yeah, right. The fact that the New York Times didn't go with the common one that people use all the time highlights the fact. Or that, that Lee Drutman's organization, I believe it's his organization that yeah, comes up. With the yeah, quiz. yeah, that that they didn't go with that common political compass is evidence of the fact that in different situations, different kinds of descriptions and analysis are valuable. Yeah. Right. And well, just to that, to that point, right. That authoritarianism is left off, right. Whereas in the political compass quiz, you can have like a left wing authoritarianism, like a Stalinist, for example. So that's would be hard to find on this kind of you're not going to get like a like a vanguard party type socialist on this spectrum because there are things that would be left off. Leaving off authoritarianism causes problems. And there's a a larger problem that I want to deal with in, in a moment when we get to it. But I think that Something getting left off of this, because I mean, you can't map it. Mapping in three dimensions is probably just overly complicated, too hard for most of us to understand. I would have trouble understanding it. I, on the other hand, yeah, Philip would I'm not. playing four D chess on the regular. Yeah, yeah, and I'm I'm I only play checkers. But I've never I think played checkers in my life. For example, for an example of the way that the the, the different the different ways you can label this are still inadequate. So take for example. You just map parties along economic left, right, and social progressive to conservative. If you look at the way that the Republican Party has moved since, say, the 1990s or maybe the president of George H.W. Bush, rhetorically, the party has moved toward the economic left, engaging in populist rhetoric, critical of big business and complementary of lower income Americans. The working class party. Yeah. Um, but in reality, their domestic economic policy remains really friendly to big business and wealthy Americans, cutting taxes and criticizing or undermining antitrust efforts. They're lying to you. <laughs> but the real movement economically has been sort of a decisive shift against globalization and toward isolationism or protectionism. 
you can see, for example, in Ronald Reagan's presidency, starting sort of a path to NAFTA with free trade agreements with Canada, and under the presidency of H.W. Bush, he signs agreements to start the negotiation of NAFTA. So you can see this this sort of free trade foreign economic policy right right there. You can see also how H.W. Bush campaigned on pro-immigration policies. It was a big part of the Republican Party shtick was we need immigration to fuel our economy, right? So these two positions are very not isolationist, very not protectionist. They're very, let's engage with the global world, you know, blah, blah, blah. Right. You can, but you can see lately a Republican Party shift away from that kind of that kind of policy. Right. Obviously, it was there with Donald Trump's campaign, but also with his policies pulling out of the TPP, the Trans-Pacific Partnership, mm. and... Tariffs with China. Tariffs with China, and the performative nonsense about Harley-Davidson's factory, whatever, bringing it back to the United States. <laughs> yeah. Something like... Stuff like that. You can see the Republican Party shift toward isolationism and protectionism. Right. So, on the one hand, you could say, okay, well, now that's a right-wing position, Right. And you could remap it on the political spectrum because the, the position shift, blah, blah, blah. Yeah. The trouble is you see a similar sentiment from Bernie Sanders, who is a trade protectionist for similar reasons to Donald Trump. You know, we got to protect, at least rhetorically, we got to... Or just re restore manufacturing in the United States. Re restore manufacturing in the United States, yeah. Mm -hmm. but bring, bring, bring back jobs to America. The global economy has sort of has screwed over the average American. Very similar rhetoric and positions there. Mm -hmm. So it's not so simple as now isolationism is right-wing, whereas global engagement is left-wing. It's almost like you need your own like economic political graph, right, of like economic nationalism, right, versus economic liberalism, right, so what we're talking about, economic nationalism or isolationism, protectionism and stuff, economic liberalism, yeah. free trade. And then another axis that would, you know, have like social welfare spending or fiscal, you know, fiscal conservatism and stuff like that, right? So yeah, it's like almost so, with its own economic graph that doesn't even and then properly map. And then you've got authoritarianism and libertarianism also. Right. And, you, and so now you're introducing all kinds of different grades along which you 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 rate sort of a party's yeah. alignment and it gets very very complicated at a certain point you can only envision the, the a political spectrum in like some sort of like you know six-dimensional world or <laughs> something that galifianakis like that. <laughs> counting cards in the hangover kind of yeah. thing but another thing is that okay even imagine like the perfect political compass that incorporates all these ideas it gets even more difficult because to be a trade protectionist in order to protect lower income people in the United States mm -hmm. is not going to be favorable to big businesses, particularly, especially multinational corporations. Right. And to be favorable to big business is not going to allow you to be favorable to workers. So while the Republican party pursues this domestic economic policy, which is favorable to big business and the wealthy. Right. And at least rhetorically and in some ways materially pursues this sort of protectionist angle, mm -hmm. it highlights that there are ideological and practical inconsistencies within a party's positions that don't allow it to be so easily mapped from one end to another. Right. right? And I think you can also point to like, for example, right, we're obviously in a period of, of pretty intense political polarization on certain political issues, right? And actually, if you look at it, I think, and I, you know, I say this, as someone who comes from sort of a left liberal perspective, 
it has been the left side of the political spectrum that I think has polarized more in a certain direction than the right. I, I like, for example, the right wing. I think has not, except maybe on immigration, has not really polarized in a strong direction on on issues per se. Right. I think. I mean, it's changed its economic stance on in terms of economic nationalism, isolationism, and its stance on immigration. But in some ways, I think it has you know, liberalized or sort of forgotten its opinion about gay marriage. It's maintained a pretty consistent position on abortion throughout the past, you know, couple decades. Although, right, obviously, in terms of policy, that's changing with the recent Supreme Court decision. But it's really been, I think, the left that has started to move on social issues, economic issues, perhaps a little bit, but not as much, that it started to move towards the left on social issues in a lot of ways. Yeah. And But it's where where the real polarization has happened and where something that maps just social conservatism and, and social liberalism and economic left and economic right maybe falls short is that you're missing this authoritarian aspect. And the Republican right. Party, perhaps in part because it has watched its sort of, it has watched the polarization of the Democratic Party or just because it's ultimately just is totally satisfied with holding power by holding, you know, only a, not winning the popular or, or, vote. Or, or, yeah, that it remains um, committed to these positions and cannot find the support practically within a fair electoral system. Right. It's polarized in the that. direction of authoritarianism. It, like yeah. it has. There's there's really, like, there's I don't, I don't think there's any sort of any if evidence or but about it. There's, there's no ifs, ands, or buts. Really, they have polarized in the direction of authoritarianism pretty drastically. And so it's not just issues that, that, that constitute this political spectrum of where we are. It's also, you know, how authoritarian or libertarian you are in terms of how you deal with government. And I think that that's how you handle elections and stuff like that. And so I think, again, you're seeing that these, this, this complexity is there and it's very difficult. Yeah. And if, any of that was confusing. We hope it wasn't. But if it was, it wouldn't be too far-fetched because the whole point of this is to demonstrate that the complexity of politics and ideology cannot be communicated on a political spectrum or on any sort of reasonable political compass or grid-based system of, uh, you know, rating. Not a two-dimensional one, for sure. Yeah. Maybe not even a three-dimensional. And it also, by extension demonstrates just how inadequate a two-party system is at communicating or encapsulating a coherent or nuanced ideology which voters can really relate to right in full mm -hmm. right because if you if if politics is more complicated than can be mapped by some sort of binary left right mm -hmm. then politics is more complicated than can adequately be mapped by two parties Right. It's that simple. If you're voting for a party, as we've demonstrated with all these different sort of inconsistencies and coherencies, different positions from issue to issue ideologically, if you're voting for a party in a two-party system or in any system, there could be a million different ideas that cause you to do so. Right. You know? But in a two-party system, a lot of them are going to be in conflict. You know, I could vote for Donald Trump because he is a trade protectionist and he's going to help people like me, previous factory workers who got laid off because of the globalized economy and this factory moving to China. I could do that, but that's going to be in conflict with Donald Trump's policies that are actually domestically favorable toward the wealthy, right. not people like me. I mean, it's worth remembering that the single biggest legislative achievement during Donald Trump's period in office was a tax cut, the benefits of which went in great shares, the highest possible shares to the wealthiest Americans. Right. And so you either become a single issue voter in which the incoherencies or contradictions of a party's positions and its policies are ignored, 
in favor of a singular consideration. Okay, so I'm just going to focus on this issue and this is all that matters to me. Uh, because if it's all that matters to you, acknowledging all the other things that a party is doing might cause reconsideration or complications, right? Or you grab a jersey and join a team. Yeah. And say, I'm a Republican and I'm going to vote for Republicans. Or I'm going to vote blue no matter who. Mm-hmm. You know? That's what I do. You grab a jersey and, and you're joining a team. And once you've done that, then say you were a card-carrying Republican in the 80s or 90s, say that was because of some principled reasons about Reagan or H.W. Bush's policies. Today, you've either abandoned the party or long ago turned that ideological or principled commitment in for a jersey and team membership and you're voting for Republicans no matter what. And the point there is that in a two-party system, it's conducive to that sort of team team idea because you know there's one team who you vote for and one team you're against whereas in a multi-party system there might be you know one team you vote for but not necessarily and all the other teams are teams you're principally against right and so what two party what a two-party system does there is that once you've grabbed a jersey it doesn't matter who is in charge or or what they believe in because it's your team and you're going to vote for them Right. I mean, I think that's why perhaps, you know, if you're sort of a, you know, a listener who is tangentially interested in politics, this might seem a little odd because it seems like, again, we have become relatively sorted into two teams and things seem, you know, pretty straightforward, Democrat, Republican. And that's because, you know, people have, you know, picked a team. And the reasons for that tend actually not necessarily to stem from policy, right? There's, you know, good empirical evidence that suggests that a lot of our political views are actually products of, you know, where we were raised, what party our parents were, you know, supported, and not, and by and large, people don't make radical changes to that throughout their lives. People obviously do, but by and large, we stick with the team that we know from our birth, and we shift with them as they change on policy issues. But we don't necessarily—we're not always super critical of that, and we sort of follow, you know, and, and we, you know, we shape our views in line with them as they move in one direction. And there's obviously it's it's it it runs both ways. What voters want, parties respond to; what parties do, voters tend to follow. But that is one sort of direction of how things move. Is as the parties move because it's our team, we move with them. I actually think a good example of it running both ways is in is in the 2016 election, right? I think that there was a lot of people on the right who were very dissatisfied with the so-called establishment. Um, and so Donald Trump became an avatar. And then it became in response to that, that just about anything he said, they would move in his direction. No matter how inconsistent he was, they generally would move, they would generally follow along with him, right? And that's how people tend to tend to behave in terms of in, in partisan politics. Yeah. So the point being that we can see that this problem has arisen in American politics of a team battle, which appears to be sort of life and death and which has polarized to the point that nobody is switching sides. Mm-hmm. The idea behind to behind a two party system is ostensibly from, from its advocates that it will force compromise and that it will create sort of big tent political alliances, which can bring people together rather than split them apart. Essentially, if you want to be a party that has to capture half the electorate, you can't be very extremist. 
because you have to capture half the electorate. So you're going to sort of build this broad political alliance, which incorporates lots of views and makes compromise between them. And rather than a multi-party system, which would draw all these dividing lines in a population along any different little grievance or disagreement, a two-party system brings these people together and unifies them. But today we do see a two-party system, which is undeniably divided, not compromising, not unifying, but divisive. And we have to ask, how did it come to this? And that's a great big question, but there's maybe something insightful in exploring how the two-party system itself contributed to this situation. Uh, and, and whether a multi-party system like the one proposed by Lee Drutman in that New York Times article that we talked about would fix the situation. I think that if, if in our previous discussion about sort of what we've happened, what we've seen happen about party loyalty mm-hmm. and uh, extremism mm-hmm. just a minute ago was at all confusing and you're wondering why do people stick with their team or why is it able to radicalize why isn't it moderating that's going to be part of our discussion next week mm-hmm. and you know you may have heard some takes on this before your discussions of polarization discussions of oh why don't we have a multi-party system and it's not it's not cut and dry that a, you know multi-party system is instantly better there are drawbacks to that there are problems with any kind of multi-party system that you would develop what methods are you going to use to to generate that but we promise that you will get to hear some fresh and interesting ideas on the next week and you know please mr Drutman, join us um <laughs> professor Drutman, probably professor Drutman. please professor Drutman. Join us on our podcast. We'd love to have you. And uh, yeah, so don't miss out on next week's discussion, guest or no guest, of the two-party and multi-party systems in America and you know what we can learn about political sustainability from these ideas. That's all for today. If you enjoyed, consider subscribing for discussions like these between the editors from Birdseye and Reflections. If you'd like to listen to each new article of focus and insight from Spectacles read aloud, there's a link in the show notes for Spectacles Out Loud. If you'd like to make a comment about this episode, there's a link in the show notes to our website, where you'll also be able to subscribe to our newsletter if you haven't already. Thanks for tuning in. Thanks. Thanks.